It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. What is up? Welcome to Money for Lunch. It's good to have you here, guys. And in case you haven't heard, we're going to be filming live in San Diego, California, this week. And um, uh, where else? Oh, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to be in Las Vegas doing some stuff there. So if uh, you want to be considered to be on the show, then uh, hit me up, Bert at BertMartinez.com or of any of the top social networks. And, uh, you know, love to consider having you on the show. I think it'd be fun. All right. What, let's see, what, uh, what's the quote of the day? The quote, of, the quote of the day comes from Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. I've missed more than nine thousand shots in my career i've lost almost 300 games 26 times i've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed i failed over and over and over again in my life and that is why i succeed oh yeah take that to heart my friends i have failed over and over and over again in my life and that's why i succeeded by the great michael jordan all right i am ready to party uh here on the show we have jim beach jim beach has started businesses and has taught entrepreneurship around the world at the age of 25, Jim founded American Computer Experience and grew the company with no capital infusion to $12 million in annual revenue and over 700 employees operating in 39 states in three countries. Jim taught entrepreneurship at Georgia State University for nine years and ranked number one in the business school for 12 straight semesters. Jim's first book, School of Startup was published by McGraw-Hill and went on to the number nine on the bestseller list. He has been featured on UPS commercials. CNN called him the Simon Cowell of, of small business. Corporations like Wells Fargo, Toshiba, UPS, and SunTrust have hired him as a speaker and or consultant. His award-winning radio show is nationally syndicated. Jim Beach, welcome to Money for Lunch. And thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Simon Cowell of small business, in, in, in meaning what? That you're able to look at a business and say, you suck, get out, talk. Uh, where does that Simon Cowell reference come in? You know, I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Uh, sometimes Simon's really nice. I'd like to think that I'm at least nice and not as much of a jerk as him. But I do think that you can look at a business in a competition or simply by talking to the owners and tell if it's going to work or not. They either have it together or they don't. They can answer the questions or they can't. And so I think a five, ten-minute conversation is all just about you need to figure out if it's going to work or not. 
Yeah, and, and I think, you know, even though Simon can be a jerk, the guy is a friggin' genius when it comes to, uh, you know, spotting the good from the great. Uh, you know, the, the, one of my favorite times uh, is when Simon Cowell will be listening to somebody and he'll stop him right there and say, you know, I don't get this. This is not your best. Give me something better than this. Uh, you know, let, let's do another song. I think this song doesn't fit your style or whatever. And and on more than one occasion, uh, that individual will stop and they'll start a different song. And, you know, and, and Simon, uh, w- you know, and everybody else will cheer them on and stuff like that. So I think it is a compliment. And I think the compliment is that you probably have enough intuition maybe to to tell whether it's a good idea versus a bad idea, maybe a good manager versus a bad manager, or maybe you know how to pull the best out of people. So we'll say it's a compliment on a big way. Let's hope so. Another thing Simon is good at is he gives good advice. Yeah. Similar to what you were saying, you need to change your song and something like that. I would like to think that all of the helpful entrepreneur gurus can do the same sort of thing, say, yeah, that's a really interesting business, and I, I appreciate your sales distribution channel, but you might have more success in this other distribution channel, and that one little tweak will make the business successful. And so I hope there's some of us out there doing that for entrepreneurs. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right. So let's let's dive into this. Uh, I want to ask you, based on your experience, uh, not only as a consultant but a teacher, what do you think the average person thinks about entrepreneurship, or or what do you think the average person thinks entrepreneurship is? Well, I, I love that question, and unfortunately, I think the answer is a big problem. So. If we were to go ask 100 people on the street what is an entrepreneur, I think 99% of them are going to include three words, creativity, some risk, and some passion. And so the definition that they would all agree with is entrepreneurs are creative people taking risks, starting businesses that they're passionate about. And I think almost everyone would agree that that's a, a good definition of entrepreneurship. The problem is, is that those three words are words that are going to stop me from being a successful entrepreneur. So how many times have you heard this? Well, that's, I, I really want to be an entrepreneur, but I haven't had my great idea yet. And, but when I do, when I get my lightning bolt from God, oh, my goodness, I'm going to start the coolest business ever. Just when I get my idea, or you hear people say, you know, my boys are about to go off to college now, and now's not a good time for me to take that risk. Or I, I don't have, you know, my 401K isn't as full as I'd like it to be, and I can't take that risk right now. So they sit on the sofa forever. Or I don't know what I'm passionate about, or I'm passionate about this, but I can't make a living doing that. And so they end up working for the man forever. And so these three words provide people with an excuse for inertia. They're sitting on the sofa for decades wanting something that they can't get because they can't get past these three words. And 
my argument is that those three words are 100% wrong, that they have nothing to do with entrepreneurship, that they don't need to be a part of it. And when you break it down, I think that there's some really encouraging news there. Let's look at creativity. You know, creativity is not necessarily the entrepreneurial formula. As a matter of fact, it's almost never part of the entrepreneurial formula. London School of Economics and Babson University did a study, and they found that 93% of businesses are copies of old businesses. And you think about it. We have some famous entrepreneurs, Zuckerberg, of course, but he stole his idea from MySpace. And we have Marriott, Bill Marriott, famous hotel, except they've had hotels for thousands of years. And Roy Kroc, who built McDonald's, well, there's been restaurants for thousands of years, too. So many of our entrepreneurs are just doing things that other people have done before. They just did it better, you know. And so you think about that, that is very liberating. So I don't have to have a great idea. I just have to, to do it better. The first business of mine that you were asking or referring to in the introduction, the summer camp business, that was a blatant copy of someone else. We just did it 100% better than they did, and we didn't break any laws. We didn't steal any copyrights or patents or trademarks, but we just did it a tremendously better. And so I've got create, or all sorts of recognition and awards for being so creative, but my idea was just someone else's. I just did it better. They would hold their uh, programs at resorts that you had never heard of, old beat-up I would hold my events at places like Stanford and MIT and Georgetown and UCLA and University of San Diego. They're close to you. Who would you want to go to? Would you like to go to a program at MIT or at some beat-up old resort, right? And so creativity is awesome. It's great. But don't use it as an excuse for sitting on the sofa. Does all that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so let's, okay, well, so the first word was what? Creativity. And I don't think that creativity is necessarily important. And the second word was risk. So I talk, can I explain that now? Sure. So, so the risk was, okay. so, so you were talking about risk in the very beginning, right? When about, I, I can't risk my 401 and. That's right. And, yeah. Okay. And, and so I want to, and so then after that, you talked about creativity and I, and I love this idea of, of finding something else and just doing it better. Uh, you know, when you look at the Ray Kroc story in McDonald's, I mean, the reason it's called McDonald's is because the McDonald brothers started that and they're the ones who kind of innovated it. And, and you had somebody like Kroc who said, Hey, we can franchise this, right? We can blow this up. And so it, it was the merging of those two ideas that made McDonald's, McDonald's, right? And, and, and right, back yeah, to your but, story about starting your computer company. Yeah, look, there's a lot of computer companies out there, and and uh, you know they they just made like you said they did something different or something better. They were able to execute it better. You look at Dell computers. You know, Michael Dell started I think in in his in, in his apartment or his garage, and and then it eventually took off, and and uh, now Dell. You know, again, Dell is, uh, what do you call it, uh, was a, a, just a computer company like a lot of other computer companies. But the only, I think his innovative idea 
if you want to call it that, is that he would let you put your computer together. And, and so if you wanted different components in there, that was kind of his thing. But like a lot of other computer retailers, eventually he got to the point where he said, hey, this is our basic model and here's our upgrade. And, and, and of course, he went on to do different things. But I, I like this this idea of not having to be creative because I think it takes a lot of pressure off of people. Exactly. Exactly. And then the same thing is true with risk. People are thinking I have to risk it all or I can't be an entrepreneur. Well, of the fortune 500 companies, 430 were started with less than $5,000. And so if they can make it big, well, maybe I could too. And Dell's a great example. He also started for under $500. You're right. I think he started in his college dorm room and was able to create a you know multi-billion dollar enterprise. I've seen so many examples of people taking low-risk ventures to great success. And so the idea that you have to have a bunch of money or you have to go raise a bunch of money or go to your in-laws and take a loan and then they never speak to you again, maybe your business could be started for four, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000, and people will argue, no, not what I want to do, and then I say, well, let me look around, and sure enough, five minutes later on the Internet, I find someone who did start a business very similar to what you want to start, and they did it with low risk. One of my favorite stories is my brother-in-law, Joey. Joey wanted to run a restaurant, wanted to be a restaurateur and have a bar. You know, so many men love the idea of having a bar where everyone knows your name, right? And didn't have the money, so he finally he was 35. He said, if I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. So he started a bar with $5,000. Think how little money that is. All he could do was renovate the bathroom and get it up to code. And with the money left over, he bought six cases of beer. He couldn't afford to buy a keg. He could only get cases of beer. And the first weekend, he made enough money to guess what? Buy more beer. And eventually he started getting cash flow positive, but the hole was so shallow. He only spent $5,000 to dig his hole. So to get out of it, he didn't have to sell that much. Two years later, a company moved in across the street, and they spent $2 million renovating a place, and they brought in all that big brass equipment to make their own beer, and they had craft beer and all that. Think about this. How many beers do you have to sell? to recoup your $2 million investment versus how many beers do you have to sell to recoup your $5,000 investment? Well, of course, the $2 million place went out of business. Joey now owns it, and he owns 10, 15 different bars, restaurants. He owns a parking lot next door to a SEC college football stadium. He owns the ATM machine inside of that college football stadium. He's making tons of money all off of a low bar restaurant. wasn't his dream. He wanted a beautiful place, and instead he opened a dive, a dump. And it's still a dump. 20 years <clears> later, it's still a dump. But you know what? He makes tons of money there, and he has a really nice place across the street now. So maybe starting off with little money is possible in your industry. I'd like to argue that with somebody. Well, you know what, and, and here's the deal. Look, back in back in my day when I I did mergers and acquisitions, right? We we would get businesses for free. 
Right now, and you know this probably better than anybody else, 80% of businesses fail within the first few months, you know, whatever you want to call it. I've heard first few months, first few years, but bottom line is right now there are literally millions of businesses that are struggling and they don't see a way out. And they would gladly give you the keys to their business for free or for very, very cheap. They would, there's just, I, I, I cannot tell you how many businesses that we, that uh, we were able to take over literally for free uh, simply because the owners were out of, out of uh, money. They were overwhelmed. They, they just didn't know what they were doing with the business anymore. And you come in and you're able to put a system in place that turns that business around. Or in some cases, you're able to uh, dissolve that business where the former owner is off of the liabilities and you're able to pick up some assets and, and then you sell off the assets. My point being is that you can, you can either start a business with, I think, with uh, very little money to no money. And I think it does come back down to your commitment because uh, there was a, it just so happens there was a gentleman that uh, he started his supplement business. And a supplement business, like a lot of businesses, it's a very mature marketplace, very, very competitive. And he started it with 800 pounds of protein, and he would get on the phones for uh, six to eight hours a day, hammering the phones, trying to, trying to find buyers for his protein. And he started with a total of $1,000. So if you're in it to win it, you can make it happen. I agree. I love that story. And it's, it's just happened too many times for people to discount it. To say, oh, no, I have to do this. There are too many examples of too many people in too many industries who've done it in a low-risk fashion. And so if you can do it that way, you might as well try and save yourself all those sleepless nights because you're worrying about the triple mortgage you just did on your house without telling <laughs> your wife. <laughs> without telling the wife, absolutely. All yeah. right, let's talk about passion. Uh, what's your take on passion? Are, are, is it too hyped up? Is it too important? Is it not important? Let's talk about passion. Well, I think passion is awesome for the church, the synagogue, the mosque, and your family, right? I love right. some passion on a Friday night, you know. But I don't understand passion for a product. That's called materialism. I don't understand passion for a service business. Let me ask you a very simple question. Would you rather be at work doing the thing you love the most or at home with your wife, with your family, at the Ritz in Paris with your wife, with your family, going down the Colorado River with your son, taking your daughter to see the princesses at Disney World, you damn well better choose the second option or you need to go get some counseling. You are not supposed to have work and entrepreneurship, a business, is called work, that's more important than your God, your family, your wife, your husband, the people you love, and your neighbors and your friends. That stuff should come first. So having agreed on that, and I don't think anyone's really going to argue with me on that, then 
passion is not what we think it is. I love what I do, but there is something else that I would rather do. I would rather be with my family skiing, right? So if I acknowledge that, then I can change the way that I think about work. I love what I do, not what I sell. I love the freedom of my lifestyle, not what I sell. I love the fact that if I want to make more money, I work harder. I do not love what I sell. I love the fact that I get up when I want to, wear what I want to, and work what I, where I want to, not what I sell. And so people get obsessed with, I have to love what I sell. No, again, that is called materialism. You shouldn't love the jewelry that you make. You should really, really like it. So if we agree that we have something that we enjoy more than work, well, then maybe passion for the process is enough. Maybe passion for the lifestyle is enough. I like the fact that I have freedom. I don't work well with the man. I don't do jobs very well. And so I love my lifestyle, and that's what gives me the joy to get up in the morning. They say that you have to be passionate about your product so that you can get up at 6 in the morning and go excitedly work 12, 18 hours a day. I don't have that problem. I'm very excited to get up because I know that I'm not getting in my car and driving an hour to a place called a miserable office where I have to you know, be told what to do. Then I get to go downstairs to the cafeteria and have horrible food for 30 minutes and then just watch my watch until the you know, the big hand hits five or the little hand hits five so I can go home, right? I'm excited to work all day because I'm doing fun and exciting things. Again, I don't love my product, but I love the things that come with the lifestyle. And when I make that distinction, I no longer have to love what I'm selling. I'm very willing to sell, and I've sold some weird things. I've sold women's jewelry, women's accessories, uh, women's leather products. I've sold furniture that I didn't like, that I would never in a million years put in my house. But I've sold those things because I enjoy the process of being an entrepreneur, and that changes the entire formula. I don't have to love my business. I just have to love doing my business which means I get to be free and entrepreneurial. It's a lot better than going to work every day. And so I suggest instead of worrying about falling in love with the product, fall in love with the coolness of the lifestyle. That's enough. My number one passion outside of my family is woodworking. I love woodworking. However, I'm really, really, really bad at it. And so if I were to do a business in my area of passion, woodworking, I'm sure I would fail, and that happens so many times. But I do something that I really, really, really like. I enjoy what I do, and it gives me enough money to take my daughter to see the princesses at Disney, to take my son down the Colorado River, and enough money for me to buy more woodworking classes so eventually I can get good at it. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So so – if you were going to, I guess, explain to somebody what entrepreneurship is, what's your what's your definition? Solving problems on a limited budget. I like that definition. Ooh, I like that. I like, yeah, uh, I like the, the, the joke that people say at seminars, you know, building an airplane as you jump off of a cliff. 
you know, and build the airplane on the way down. I think that's a, a fun little definition as well. But what I do is solve problems. My marketing isn't enough. So how do I solve my marketing problem? And my Facebook ads are not converting well enough. So how do I make my ads better? My customer is unhappy because of the quality of my product. So how do I make my product better? I don't have enough money right now to run a Facebook ad. So is there a creative way that I could still get some attention on social media? All of these are problems that entrepreneurs encounter every day. And my job is to go out there and figure out a way to, you know, make enough money to support the family this month and grow the business. And so what I'm doing is taking a basket of problems, HR problems, financial problems, marketing problems, production problems, and coming up with the best solution that I can in each one of those buckets so that I produce a great product. And so I have limited resources. I can't spend a million dollars to build a new factory, so I better fix the machine that I already have. My, my value proposition isn't selling that well. I better get in a room and fix my value proposition. So these are things that we can do for very little money and, you know, hopefully have some great success. So I love the definition that entrepreneurs are just going out there and solving problems. You know, one thing that entrepreneurs don't do is entrepreneurs don't form a committee. Oh, we have a problem. Well, let's form a committee to study it and get back to me in three months with your findings. Entrepreneurs don't say that. They say, well, what are we, how are we going to solve this problem today? You know, entrepreneurs don't commission a study. Entrepreneurs have a gut solution and they give it a try. And I think that's the essence of entrepreneurship, going out and solving a problem. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I'll pay you a lot of money if you make my problems go away. I went to the doctor because my knee hurt and the doctor made my pain go away. So I gave him a lot of money, but I did it very happily because he made my problem go away. And I don't like to walk long distances, so I went and bought one of those car things. And I gladly did it. I did research for a month in advance, and I was so excited to buy this new car. And I gladly gave my money away. And so when we solve problems, people will gladly, gladly pay you. And so the entrepreneurs solve problems, and people pay them to solve those problems. You know, I don't like the clothes that are out there. So you, I love this clothes. You solved my problem of not liking the clothes. This is a beautiful accessory. I would gladly buy it. I need a furniture, a piece of furniture that fits in with my log, uh, log cabin, my rustic dry stack stone fireplace, and my leather sofa. And you've designed a chair that fits in exactly into that environment. I don't care what the chair costs. I'm going to buy it, right? Yeah. solve problems on a limited budget. Yeah, you know what, and and I think that uh, depending on the problem that you're solving, people, because uh, you mentioned a couple of times, uh, you paid a lot of money. I mean, people sometimes think that, uh, you know, that uh, money, meaning a low a low price, is going to be the thing that helps. Uh, help sell your product. And sometimes it might, but you know, there are people out there who are buying a, a $30,000 Ford today. And there are people out there who are going to be spending 300 grand on a Ferrari and they both kind of do the same thing, but they also solve different problems. And that's why one person's willing to pay 30 grand and the other per person's willing to pay 300 grand. 
And, and so when you're solving problems, you can solve inexpensive problems and you can solve really expensive problems. Yeah, I think that's really important. I would rather solve as an entrepreneur an expensive problem because I think that racing toward low price for a startup business is just really dangerous for cash flow. Yes. So instead of, you know, I used to sell furniture and we produced the furniture ourselves. Instead of selling a $200 chair, we sold a $4,000 chair. And how hard do you have to work to sell a $200 chair? I think it's about the same amount of work you have to do to sell a $4,000 chair. It's different work, but it's still about the same amount of time. With a $200 chair, I'm going to make $50 of profit. With a $4,000 chair, I was making $3,500 of profit for the same amount of work. And interestingly enough, uh, absolutely. And, and interestingly enough, so uh, a couple of months ago, I had uh, our mastermind meeting. And in that mastermind meeting, we got talking about almost the same exact thing. And so uh, we, somebody came up with the question, has anybody in our mastermind sold a $1 million contract or widget? Now, all, all the people in my, in my uh, mastermind group have uh, – uh, a high, you know, what do you call it? Uh, seven, or they're, they're, they're at least making a million dollars a year uh, or above. So, so bottom line is uh, that, you know, making a million dollars in a year is, is good, but it's different than selling a million dollar widget or contract. And so we started having this fun uh, experiment with what would it take to sell a million dollar service contract. If you're a consultant, what would it take for you to sell a million dollar contract to, you know, uh, a big corporation? What would it take for, for, if you're selling widgets, what would it take for you to sell a million dollar widget? You know, uh, and so bottom line is this conversation ended up sparking a lot of inspiration and we started kind of a little uh, experiment uh, to see what we can do uh, to sell a million dollar contract. And it's exactly the same amount of work. You, you are changing yep. who you're marketing to. You're going to take the same amount of no's. Uh, and, and you have to still deliver, you still have to deliver value. Uh, so, so nothing changes other than the mindset. I agree. So for us entrepreneurs, let's sell a high-end product. Yeah. And get more value and offer more value. So I, I do believe that's a, a huge part of the formula. I, I don't want to work hard and make $12. Nope, so. nope, nope. Uh, now, okay, so speaking of experiments, I, I want you to tell me about uh, your class experiment in your MBA class. Talk about this. Well, I alluded to it with chairs. So I had just sold this business with hundreds of employees and I thought I was the coolest thing on earth. And that was 20 years ago. Since then, I've learned a little bit. And was talking to my class about how entrepreneurship can be easy if you do it right. And they said, no, it's hard. And I said, no, if you do it right, it's easy. And they said, no, it's hard. And I said, you can do it right. And, you know, it can be easy. And so we made a bet. 
that I could start a business that semester, make it cash flow positive that semester, repay all of my startup capital that semester. And they got to choose not only the industry that I would start my business in, but also the country that I would start my business in. And so this one, they were, again, 20 years ago, they were trying to be funny. It was right after 9-11. They said that I should start a Pakistani furniture company. So we did, and if you go to my LinkedIn page, Jim Beach, first ask to be my friend. I would love to connect with you. And scroll to the very bottom of my LinkedIn page. You can see a company there called Timeless Chair, and you can look at the chairs, some of the chairs that we ended up selling. And we were able to win the bet by limiting our risk, by not being creative. I blatantly stole the idea for my product. I'll, I'll tell you what the product was. It was a really great idea. We took 100-year-old Killam Persian rugs, Oriental rugs, and we cut them up and used that as the fabric for a brand-new armchair or a brand-new mm. sofa, you know, like a two-person sofa. So the fabric was already subtle and buttery. It had been worn for 100 years, but it was still beautiful. It was a a work of art, and now this chair took on this 100-year-old persona. It was absolutely gorgeous. And, again, please go look at my LinkedIn pages. The, the pictures will blow you away of the quality of these items. I could get one of those imported to Charleston, South Carolina, for $430. I could sell it then for anywhere between three to 4000 So to limit the risk, I only bought three or four chairs. If I sold two, I was already making a lot of money, profit. And so by limiting my risk at the beginning, I was able to you know, win the bet pretty easily. I didn't have that much cash flow to overcome. And this is where some of my philosophy about risk came from. I could have spent, you know, half a million dollars. I could have done things like go to Pakistan and tour the factory. I never went to Pakistan. I never toured a factory. I used the gold key service, which is part of our U.S. Department of Commerce. They have an office in every embassy around the world. Their job is to help American entrepreneurs find people in local communities that want to make killing chairs for people in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I was able to find a factory, make a partnership for free. It didn't cost me anything. I didn't have to go to a trade show. I sent them a drawing and a picture of what I wanted. They sent one that was horrible. I said, make these changes, and they sent another one. I already have merchandise to sell, and I've only spent $2,000. The item was not original, I had seen in a flea market in Santa Barbara in 1995, I saw an ottoman that obviously someone had made at home. It looked like they had taken an old oriental rug and cut it up and used it on the ottoman. I saw that 10 years before I made this bet, and I was like, that's cool. I, like, I want this ottoman. If I weren't going to fly home, I would buy this ottoman. And so when I decided to make a business in Pakistan, I did my research and Pakistan's number one export is beautiful oriental rugs. Uh, there's my business right there. I didn't do anything creative. I stole my idea from a Pakistan. I mean, I'm sorry, from a flea market in Santa Barbara, California. I then limited my risk. And you know what? I love this business, but I'm not passionate about it. The second I could get out of it, I did get out of it. 
because the chairs are really, really, really heavy, and I don't like to carry really, really, really heavy stuff. But it's a cool business. Yeah. I hope that today's giant takeaway is you don't have to be creative. You don't have to take a lot of risk. You don't have to be crazy passionate about whatever you're doing. You also have to stuff a lot of profit in there. So why sell a $200 widget when you can sell a $4,000 widget? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Sell expensive stuff. Yeah. And, and, and again, don't let your own hangups stop you from selling expensive stuff. I mean, just because you wouldn't spend $4,000 on a chair doesn't mean that somebody else uh, wouldn't, right? I mean, uh, I'm from, uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and there's a gentleman in Houston, Texas named uh, Jim McAvale. And Jim McAvale has a store called Gallery Furniture. And Gallery Furniture sells your basic home stuff. And, you know, he, he's like, he understands that some people don't want the basic or whatever, the, uh, the low to medium uh, type of items. And he also sells the outrageously expensive stuff. And the outrageously expensive stuff that he sells, he sells more of it than um, there, there's a particular line. I can't remember the line that he carries. Uh, and, and they make these crazy, just beautiful drop-dead uh, items. And, and, and it's just like uh, this coffee table. Uh, the coffee table loan sells for around uh, $6,000. Anyway, uh, he sells so much of this product that the manufacturer cannot deliver it as quickly as he does because he's got this warehouse-style situation where he'll, if he knows what's selling, he'll buy a lot of it, uh, and then he stores it. And sometimes, uh, on more than one occasion, he's told me that – that other retailers that sell the same stuff because they can't deliver it the same day will actually refer it to him because he will deliver it the same day. And in some cases he will deliver it the same day out of his city or even out of the state of Texas. That's how committed he is to the customer experience. But like you, Jim, that is not something that I would like to do. I I don't like delivering stuff other than by online and I don't like to be involved with uh, multiple moving parts, but bless him uh, for doing that. And he's built a massive reputation and a massive business for that. But again, that's, you know, the takeaway today is, you know, stuff in a lot of profit, go for the expensive stuff. As long as you can deliver the value and the customer service, passion is not part of the equation. Risk doesn't have to be part of the equation and creativity doesn't have to be part of the equation. Yes, occasionally somebody is creative, but again, that's the exception, not the rule, right? Yeah, you know, the 7% that are creative, God bless them. 
I'm just willing to go out here, read an idea in Inc. Magazine about what you're doing in your town, and I'm going to do it in my town. Yes. Well, and, and look, look at Japan. Uh, what I love about Japan is, first of all, Japan is this little tiny island. It has minimal uh, I think somebody said it actually has um, no actual uh, natural resources. They have to import everything and then export it. So at one point, Japan was the number one importer of cement, and they also became one of the biggest exporters of cement. They were at one point one of the biggest importers of steel, and, and then they turned around and became one of the biggest exporters of steel. Japan is known for uh, blatantly ripping people off. That's just the only way to say it. Uh, China is another example of blatantly ripping people off. I mean, you know, uh, they have in China, you know, patents and and all that stuff mean very little, and they will just copy, and sometimes, you know, they hope to make it better. So uh, anyway, not to get, not to go down uh, that rabbit hole too much further, but I want to talk about this, because a lot of people um, talk about multiple income streams. And I want you to give me your thought on the role of multiple income streams. Well, for an entrepreneur, it's absolutely critical. And no matter what industry you're in, I think you do need to diversify. If you're a restaurant, you need to have different service and a sit-down restaurant, right? Because everything is cyclical and some things will come out of style and some things will need to, you know, you need to wait and come back in style. If you're going to sell furniture, you need to sell all sorts of different types of furniture because I'll tell you what, no one's buying antiques right now, so you can't give those things away, right? So I do think that multiple income streams are important. I love the idea since we're going to limit risk, and this is how it ties in so importantly. And I don't really care if the business works or not. I'm not looking at it as something I'm – passionate about and in love with, I'm very willing to shut it down if it doesn't make any money, is you sort of start a lot of little things and see what catches on. And if it works, then you put more time and money into it. And if it doesn't work with no regret whatsoever, you kill it and say, uh, we're not going to worry about that, right? So I love a challenge I gave my wife. I, you know, my wife married an entrepreneur, and she had never started a business. And I said, you should start one. And I gave her a book do this business. And she did. She spent $500. She made $78,000 in the first year. Zero risk, right? Started with 500 bucks. There was zero creativity. She copied the book, right? Purely copied, did what the book said. We don't have any passion for that business except for the money, right? And I'm doing my money dance right now. If this were video, you could see that I'm doing my money dance because we made $78,000, Anyway, right? It worked. So we do it again. Right. I tried a different business that year. We made $100 off of it. We killed it. And so multiple streams, every year try something. Once you get one up and running and you see that it's easy and doable to start a $100,000 business, truly is easy in today's world. I can tell you the name of the book my wife read or wrote, read. And you can read the same book and you can copy the same system, right? It, it did work. You know, some of those BS systems actually turn out to be great. In this one, I'll tell you what she does. She sells stuff on Amazon. She buys wholesale in bulk, sells it at retail on Amazon, and makes a bunch of money. 
And so that's and, and, works and we And I'm sorry, Jim, what was the name of the book? Uh anything by Skip McGrath. Skip McGrath. He has a business on eBay. He has a business book on Amazon, How to Be an Amazon Retailer. I bought the Amazon book from Skip McGrath, M-C-G-R-A-T-H at skipmcgrath.com. I in no way am associated with him. I don't get paid at all. I do not have an affiliate relationship with him, but everything that he writes, we buy. And it's great stuff. His system works, and it's a, a real a real moneymaker. And so when you have opportunities like that, my wife still has a full-time job. So now she has two income streams. I have a couple of income streams. Now our family has four income streams. If she gets fired tomorrow, we're okay. We won't go out of business. Our family will survive, right? And so I love thinking about risk. Entrepreneurs say, you know, I have to worry about risk. And so I ask you this, which is safer today? Which is safer, to work for a big 500 company that has layoffs, you don't know when it's going to happen, all of a sudden they lay off an entire division. You had nothing to do with it. It's not your fault, but your division is getting laid off, 4,000 people. That happens all the time. We read about it every day. Is that risky? It sounds like a lot of risk to me. Versus the entrepreneur who has 100 customers, 100 repeat customers. They may be 100 lawns that you take care of. It may be 100 children that you babysit in a month. If you lose 5% of your business, you still have 95 customers who can keep you afloat. To me, it sounds riskier to work for Coca-Cola, 3M, GM, Microsoft than it does to be an entrepreneur. I'd rather have 95 you know, customers than lose my job and have no income all of a sudden. You know, it sounds risky to me to be an employee. Well, I like you know multiple what? streams of income. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love what your wife is doing. Look, this is a great example. She still has her job. So yep. you could take that $78,000. We'll just say it's eighty grand. You could take that eighty grand and invest it. Uh, you know, you could take some of that money, invest it. You could take some of that money and, and do the, the, the trip to Paris uh, and, on, and all that other stuff. And so there, there, are, there are so many different ways to enjoy being an entrepreneur without, again, being risky. By, by taking risk, being creative, or having a specific passion about something. I think that, you know, anybody listening to today's show should walk away with multiple ahas, right? I mean, they, they should be walking away saying, man, <coughs> excuse me, I can be an entrepreneur without taking risk, without necessarily quitting my job, without, you know, doing all these different things, uh, you know, all, all these entrepreneur traps that a lot of people fall into. And so that's my message that anyone can be a successful entrepreneur when you limit your risk, you don't worry about creativity, and you reserve passion for the bedroom. <laughs> I love it. Yes, reserving the passion for the bedroom. I love it. Jim, we're out of time. I would love to have you back again soon. Jim Beach, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thank you. It's been fun. Have a great day. You bet. Good stuff there from Jim Beach. And today's show is literally how you can get rich as an entrepreneur without taking risk, without 
being creative or having a specific passion or even a specific skill set. I love the example that he gave about the chair. I love the example that he gave about his wife. Uh, Here, honey, read this book and follow the book. She did. And all of a sudden she made an extra 70 or uh, $78,000. Now, does that mean that you're going to get the exact same results? No, it doesn't mean that. I'm not giving out any income claims. But what I'm saying is you don't have to risk anything in order to make more money. Uh, Grant Cardone said this, and I agree with it. It's so applicable to today's show. You don't need money. You just need courage. So, you know, get off your butt and take some courage. If your business is struggling financially, maybe it's time to increase your prices. Maybe it's time to double, triple, quadruple your prices. Maybe it's time for you to start thinking, how can I sell a million-dollar contract or a $4,000 widget? Always, my friends, let's share this episode with everyone we know. Let's help as many people as possible learn how they can be successful as an entrepreneur without risk or creativity or passion. Let's help as many people start thinking about increasing their profit margins. Remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.